0: All right. Welcome. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is our fifth class on the Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius. Uh, and uh, tonight we do, we're we going to do the the, the first, eh, a little more than half, uh, of book four. Uh, my goal is to get through the first five prose sections of, uh, of, of book four. So we're not going to get so far as providence and fate tonight. We'll start with providence and fate next week. Uh, but we're going to do all the book four uh, up to that. And this part, actually, I mean, of course, like the stuff that comes after this is in some ways the most important part. Uh, these are the really, really big questions and certainly uh, the ones um, which um, the the places where, um, uh, where Boethius influenced Tolkien, clearly, uh, uh, most of all. So that's going to start next week. However, tonight is really kind of my favorite part because tonight is when we are coming back to the problem of evil and taking the, all the work that Lady Philosophy has done in the first three books uh, and coming back and applying it and seeing how the problem of evil works out uh, uh, in the end. So, all right. Um, uh, so let's, uh, let's get started. First of all, uh, one quick announcement. Uh, tomorrow afternoon, we're having a really special, uh, uh, Signum Symposium. Um, our, uh, our department chair at Signum University, Serena Higgins, is going to be talking about her own work on Charles Williams. Charles Williams, of course, one of the Inklings, uh, though one of the most neglected of the main Inklings, very few, uh, Lewis and Tolkien fans really know that much about Charles Williams. Uh, uh Serena Higgins has done a, a great deal of work on Charles uh, Williams, even editing a couple of his uh, uh, of his of his texts and, and sort of bringing them out uh, again so that to make them more available for people to read. So anyway, so I, I strongly encourage uh, uh, you to attend that. That's tomorrow afternoon at 4 p.m. Um, it'll it'll be posted on YouTube afterwards. If you want to attend live, you can get the registration link on the event page on signumuniversity.org. So go to signumuniversity.org, scroll down a little bit uh, to the event page. You'll see uh, uh, the faculty chat tomorrow, uh, and uh, that should be a lot of fun. So, all right, um, we are ready to talk about Boethius. Now, normally, <clears throat> I start off with... Um, I start off with uh, the, some insights from the Latin uh, with Tom Hillman. Uh, Tom unfortunately couldn't uh, couldn't be with us tonight. He couldn't. He didn't uh, uh, have a chance to do uh, his Latin stuff this week. Uh, so we have a substitute, uh, which is going to be really fun, actually. Um, and tonight, instead of looking at the original language, uh, uh, which again we always love doing, uh, tonight we're gonna we're gonna kind of do a similar kind of thing, but we're gonna do that from a different angle. I've mentioned before that Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy it was just has was beyond influential uh, in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and and and, and for long long periods of time, um, it was simply one of the I mean what minimum top five uh, uh, most read books uh, throughout the Middle Ages. It was its uh, its its influence is hard um, uh, is hard to overestimate. Uh, so uh, tonight we're going to look at one of the one of the many translations of Boethius uh, into uh, other sort of local vernacular languages and see how uh, the, some of these ideas from Boethius that we're going to be looking at uh, were manifested in other uh, medieval cultures. And in particular, one which is uh, uh, sort of fun and interesting, especially to Tolkien fans, and that is Anglo-Saxon. So this, uh, our, our our stuff tonight comes courtesy of Signum student Richard Roland. Um, and uh, on an Anglo-Saxon adaptation uh, of Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, this is really fun stuff. So first, looking at how the, how the whole book is kind of handled in the Anglo-Saxon translation. Uh, Richard says, first and most notably, there is no lady philosophy. Boethius is visited after complaining of his betrayal by Wertsalda, worldly joys, by Heovon wisdom, heavenly wisdom who notably is referred to throughout the work with exclusively masculine pronouns for the simple reason that the word wisdom is masculine in gender. So one thing that you notice right away is that the whole connection to Greco-Roman paganism, which is so explicit uh, in Boethius's original, right, the, the tie back to uh, the old Greco-Roman thinkers, especially the ancient Greek philosophers, especially Plato and Aristotle, right? Um, And Lady Philosophy and her connection to the classical uh, uh, philosophical tradition. uh, That gets done away, right? And instead of Lady Philosophy uh, with her explicitly Aristotelian and Platonic ties, we have heavenly wisdom in general. So uh, it gets made more abstract. I mean, I know Lady Philosophy is already an abstraction, right? But... um, uh, but still. Um, okay, let's keep going. Uh, uh, and right, wisdom referred to by masculine pronouns, right? Don't get too hung up on wisdom's gender, though, because he is referred to throughout the work as the faster motor, the foster mother, or motor mother of Boethius's mind or soul. Mold with his bewenda. Tha, tha yekneo hit switha sweltel his agena motor. That was so wisdom and Larda. Uh, mind turned that way. It recognized very clearly its own mother. That was wisdom who had trained and taught it long before. Uh, and uh, he notes, of course, Boethius is referred to throughout the poem as mode or mind, right? That is Boethius himself is made into an allegorical character. So wh- while in the Latin, right, um, Boethius was was rooting this as a first-person account, right? He makes himself uh, the protagonist. Well, I mean, kind of lady philosophy, of course, is the real protagonist. But he makes himself the protagonist of the story, right? Because it's, it's personal. This is about his struggle, right? He was banished. He was unjustly condemned. He was imprisoned. Um, or, you know, he's banished under house arrest. And, uh, and so this is, you know, this, this is the story of sort of how he dealt with that. So there's, it, it, it has this, you know, sort of very personal angle uh, in the Latin. The Anglo-Saxon makes the choice to, 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 to move away from that entirely, right? It allegorizes uh, the whole thing so that, uh, in, so that the Boethius character isn't Boethius any longer, it's mind, right? Like the human mind uh, and the, uh, and wisdom Right? Wisdom is the mother or the foster mother of mode of mind, the central allegorical character. Uh which is kind of fun, right? Uh so okay, let's uh let's so uh so what happens next? This is my favorite part. After wisdom's first song, he slash she, and it really is of course, we really do have some gender confusion here, is joined without introduction or explanation by Yeshead Wisnes. Irvine, uh, Irvine and Godin translate this name as reason, which is probably a fair translation, as it is often used to translate Ratio in the, in the Anglo-Saxon adaptations of Latin texts. Breaking it down, it wisness. yeshéadwisnes. Shéad is from shéadon, to separate, to distinguish. wis from youwiss, either a noun meaning that which is sure, or an adjective intended to describe something which is certain, sure, trustworthy, reliable. The uh, the N-E-S there is the, you know, making it into a noun thing, just like N-E-S-S in modern English. Yeshay adwisness, which is grammatically feminine, by the way, is thus the ability to distinguish reliably between things. Anyone who has tried to follow Lady Philosophy's arguments in consola- in the Consolation knows how important this is to her. Boethius, after all, has gotten into trouble because he cannot distinguish with clarity between the things which are good the things which are the good and the things which only look like the good. So it is not unusual to see Yeshead Wisness accompanying anglo philosophy's Anglo-Saxon counterpart. What is so interesting is its personification as the feminine, inseparable counterpart to the masculine wisdom. Though as noted above, we can't get too hung up on the gender thing without putting weight on it the text may not be able to support. Uh, so I agree both with that qualification and with the fact that it's kind of interesting that we split it, this into the two teams or like split Lady Philosophy into a team, right? Um, wisdom and Yeshayad Wisness. But that concept of Yeshayad Wisness, right? That uh, that ability to distinguish or to separate um, uh, reliably between things uh, is a really really cool concept, and I, I and and to me. It's, uh, it's especially interesting and I think especially insightful on the part of the Anglo-Saxon interpreter of Boethius, because if you're going to make it into a sort of a more pure abstract allegory, right, which obviously, like, they've decided that's the way they're going, right, um, it's, that's a really fascinating element to choose I mean it's not a normal allegorical figure there are lots of sort of stock allegorical figures that you expect to find all over the place and wisdom is one of those right i mean you well, you often see wisdom you know uh, the 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 person who you know gives wise counsel to you know the allegorical figure who represents uh, you know uh, man you know every man or the human soul or whatever right um and usually of course you don't listen to wisdom and and all that kind of thing um but um but okay, so um, Yeshay right? Not a normal allegorical figure, um, but I agree with the Anglo-Saxon interpreter really central to the anglo sax to the, to the whole Boethian argument, right? And in fact, um, Yeshay Adwisness is, I think, sort of like the heroine of, t- of uh, today's class, right? The heroine of part, the first section of book four. Um, that's ultimately what Lady Philosophy is going to be coming back to here, right? As we return uh, to the problem of evil, the resolution of the problem of evil is all about Yesheadwisness, right? That ability to distinguish between things clearly. Uh, that clarity of sight. Remember the mortal things being being uh, wiped away uh, from Boethius' eyes there at the very beginning of Book 1, right? Um, so that you can distinguish, so that he can see clearly uh, and understand the meaning of things and distinguish uh, things appropriately. Uh, so, anyway, so I, I, love, uh, I love that concept. Uh, one more note uh, from Richard on the Anglo-Saxon. Uh, this one is really cool, too. The author of the Latin original refers to fortune, Fortuna, throughout the first two books, and then switches to fate, fatum, in the last two we're not going to get to Fatim today. Uh, Fatim, of course, uh, comes in with Providence uh, in uh, in the next uh, well at the end of Book Four. But again, we're going to cover that next week. Boethius seems to make a distinction between them. Fortuna is a person, or at least a personification related to the old idea of the goddess. Yes, the personification of fortune is ancient, of course. Uh, that's why notice how it, that's it's not explained or it's not. It's not, it, it does, it barely even comes up, right? Like they both talk about fortune as if uh, she was a, a goddess, right? From the, as soon as she comes up, right? She's immediately personified. That's because that personification was already very popular. I mean, Romans were always talking about being fortune's favorite, right? Um, uh Fortuna was a pretty popular uh, sort of one of those Roman, you know, the Romans were into these like abstract deities like victory and uh, 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 and, and uh, you know, other kind of pr- principles like that rather than, uh, you know, kind of people and normal, proper nouns. Um, uh, so Fortune was certainly one of those that they uh, uh, that they reverenced in that kind of way. Um, Anyway, she has an active role in the universe, Fortune does, one which Boethius laments. Fatum, on the other hand, is not a person, but rather uh, is the unfolding of the divine ordo in the temporal world. Again, more on that next week. But the adapter of the Anglo-Saxon Boethius all but denies any personification of Fortuna. He translates both words with a word that should be very similar to readers of Beowulf. Weird. Uh, Weird which usually is translated fate uh, in modern English, the indication seems to be that the semantic range of word includes both capricious changes of circumstance, the Anglo-Saxon word for this, which comes up over and over again in Beowulf, is Edwendin, and that which is foreordained by providence. It is my argument, Richard says, that this sheds light on the semantic range of word in other Old English works, such as Beowulf. Right? People are used to thinking of weird as only that second thing, only as fate. Right? Um, there is a weird upon him. Um, it's of course Tolkien's use of the word doom is uh, often very similar to the way that you can see the word weird used uh, in uh, in Anglo-Saxon. Um, so it's really interesting. I agree with Richard that it's absolutely fascinating that the translator uh, of Bo- of Boethius uses that word, weird, right, uh, to translate both Fortuna and Fatum. I would have guessed Fatum. I wouldn't have guessed Fortuna. That's really cool. That's really interesting. Um, and suggests, in a sense to me, uh, you know, one thing that I would almost... Uh, be tempted to say about that is it's almost like it's a spoiler from the beginning right by the time we get to book four we're going to get to the fact that what appears to be fortuna right that what appears to be sort of the capricious whims of chance is actually fatum all along right uh so perhaps the translation uh is is kind of as i say kind of uh uh giving us spoilers from the beginning uh yeah cool um uh David asks, Is the added character of Yeshead supported by the Latin original? Oh heck no, 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 there's nothing like that there. Um again the Anglo the Anglo Saxon translation is doing some like legitimately different things uh with the text there. Uh taking Lady Philosophy and basically splitting her uh, into, uh, into, into multiple parts. Uh, because again, it's, 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 it it makes a different choice from the beginning, right? It's going to take the arguments of lady philosophy, but take it out of the context of Boethius, the human prisoner in a particular time and place, right? Who has his philosophical background. And so he is, uh, in discussion with lady philosophy, who sort of represents that, uh, that traditional wisdom, with which he's been instructed, right? And he's going to come back to grips with, you know, himself and what he what he's learned and what he knows. Again, that's, on the one hand, what's happening, right? Um, in the original, they just take it in a different direction, right? Let's take those same arguments, but instead, let's make it into a kind of a psychological drama, right? Let's have mode, let's have mind talking to wisdom and Y'shayad Uh And... Uh, uh, and and see how mind anyone's mind at any point you know completely separate from any uh, uh, point in time uh, will um, um, you know and and how how that how that how that plays out and how this applies um, and uh, oh yeah I, Tony I absolutely would call this an adaptation instead of a translation of course all translations are adaptations um, this is quite uh, shamelessly so uh, it's uh, as uh, uh, as as Richard was saying, he and I were talking about the Anglo-Saxon Boethius uh, at MythMood, and as as he was saying that the translation, um, the translation of the uh, the Anglo-Saxon translation of, of Boethius is very Anglo-Saxon, uh, and that's what makes it so much fun, right? But again, to me. I, going back to what I said about this at the beginning, one of the reasons I find this so fascinating, um, it's not just a way to say, like, you know, let's kind of put it next to the Latin and see how true it is to the original. That's not even the point, right? It is an adaptation, but more it's, it's like a kind of application, right? What, what, what we can see is the Anglo-Saxon adapter taking the Boethian ideas and bringing them into not just the language, of the Anglo-Saxon people, but the, 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 the whole like culture and way of thinking of the Anglo-Saxon people. And that's really cool. That's really interesting. Um, and we can learn a lot, not only about Boethius and what they thought about Boethius, but, uh, but about the Anglo-Saxon culture and how these ideas that are being drawn from Boethius are being fit into it to be able to see what does, you know, I've, so I've said, everybody read this, right. And I've said that, uh, it was really influential. How, like, What exactly what kind of influence did it have? Um, And it's really neat to kind of see that on the ground here, as it were, Um, is really fun. So. um, So, yeah, Nick, I agree. It is a new thing. It is. Absolutely. Um, But again, that's fun. It's part of the fun. Right. Like any adaptation. but uh, anyway, so thank you, Richard. I, Richard's here tonight. Uh, Richard, I really appreciate your uh, uh, your work on this. Thanks for your uh, for your insights. That was uh, uh, that was really neat. I know Tom's going to be back, um, but uh, Richard, I appreciate it. Maybe we'll get a little more Anglo-Saxon uh, as well later on. Um, it's really tempting, of course. I know that Luke wants me to talk about Chaucer's translation of Boethius as well, uh, his Boece in, uh, in in Middle English, uh, which is also fun. Um, his uh, translation is a much more, um, much more direct translation, much less of an adaptation and more of a of a translation uh, than the Anglo-Saxon one. Um, but maybe we'll get a chance to as well. I mean, if I, we talk about the influence of this in other places, we'll be going on about Boethius forever. But um, but anyway, it's uh, uh, it's still it's still fun to kind of glance at these things. All right, but let's get back to the Latin. Let's carry on and uh, uh, move forward into. Uh, into book four. Oh, uh, just for those of you who I haven't um, uh, I haven't seen since last week, just that you don't get alarmed if I start gesticulating I got a cast. <laughs> I told you my finger was broken last week and they'd put a, a puny little splint on it. They decided that was not nearly melodramatic enough. They needed an enormous cast. Uh, so if you see some like weird red thing it's, that's it's just my hand and I'm still like liable to gesticulate with it. Alright, so At the beginning of book four, we are ready to apply things, right? Books, book one we saw was primarily the diagnosis, right? This was, this was Boethius saying what his problem was and Lady Philosophy listening to him and saying, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, yeah, uh uh-huh. Okay, I see the problem with you, right? And we got the diagnosis at the end. And you'll remember, what was the diagnosis? There were three things. That he didn't know. She starts to ask him questions at the end and finds that he knows some things, which is good, right? He kind of remembers what a human being is, and he does at least remember that God is in control of the universe, and that's a big deal. Um, but there are three things that he didn't get right. Remember the three things? What are the three questions? That, we'll start the quiz here. What are the three questions that Boethius doesn't know the answer to? The three things which, which lead her to say, okay, I know exactly what the problem is you remember good Stephen. what is like what are you right define what a man is what a human being is um remember he said it's a man is a rational animal right everybody knows that um and she's like yeah and and he's like what do you mean and that's it man is a rational animal so that was the problem what's the correct answer What's the next? remember by the end of book 3 we've gotten the answer to all three questions right what's the real answer what was he missing exactly yes james uh man is divine right exactly it's it's not just that man is a rational animal the human soul comes from god and is made in god's image right um it is it, it ultimately it is divine and it desires to go back to the divine just like uh my friend the paperclip before uh desire uh, uh desire i don't know what happened to that paperclip i don't even know um uh desire cuz it was, it was a charlotte paperclip it's probably still in north carolina um which is where it's home it's where it wants to be right um anyway so it uh, uh just as the paperclips fall to the earth because that's where they want to be just as the fire rises up to the sphere of fire above the air because that's where it wants to be it wants to go home and to return and to, to sort of to rejoin uh the rest of its element so to mankind the human soul wants to return to god and sort of participate in the divinity of god because that's what it is that's where it came from uh it was made in the image of god so okay um that's the first question and the correct answer what was the the next question yes how is the world governed rachel exactly how is the world governed was the second question he got wrong what's the answer Love. Yeah. Love is how the world is governed. Amor. Uh, uh, Excellent, Tony. Yeah. In Latin for the bonus points. Right. Yeah. Love. Now, what does that mean? Exactly. We got that. We got sort of we got that in poetic spoiler form. Right. Fairly early on back in book two. What does it mean to say that love governs? The world, how is so? So again, how is the world governed? What is the mechanism by which things are made to work in the world? Right? What is the mechanism? The mechanism of lo- is love in what sense? Yes, Tomas, attraction between objects. Right? It's about it's about desire. It's not only God's love, which is of course the whole sort of ultimate source of all of these things. Um, but because all things, in their different ways, come from God, uh, they also have love. They have desire, right? It is desire that makes the entire world work the way that it does. Um, everything through this, this natural inclination that Boethius has talked a lot about, the the Philosophy has talked a lot about, right? Uh, to, uh, to show that uh, things want to be where they want to be. All things naturally uh, do what they're supposed to do. It's, it's love. It's that desire that, that has been placed within every one of them that we can see all over the place right this is true of inanimate objects um, it's true of human souls the difference is inanimate objects just do it right they don't have a choice they can be restrained from it um, but they uh, they don't need to be encouraged to it they don't um, uh, they don't uh, have to go uh, 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 you know like the they don't deliberate, right? The paperclip doesn't be like, what do I? I don't know. Maybe I'm sick of going down to the ground, right? Maybe I'm going to strike out on my own. No, it it does it, right? Human souls have a choice, right? People can find the good, or they cannot find the good. They can return to God, or they cannot return to God, and that seems to be in their power, right? The choices that humans make in how they live their lives and how they see things. Right? So that's, uh, that's the difference. But again, everything functions the same way. So again, why is it, you know, remember Boethius asking the question, like, why is it only in human affairs, God, that things aren't orderly and things don't work? You know, everything else works perfectly and is, is this beautiful system but humankind is not? Well, there we go. That's why. Right? Um, now, what's the third question? So, what is a man... How is the world governed? And the third question was... Yes, Ben, you had said it before. Ben Vedder had said it. Uh, and Colin Hazlitt here. Good. Uh, to what goal is the world headed? Right? Okay, so we talk about how it's governed. Towards what? What is it striving for? What is the purpose of everything? What's the answer? Toward the good, Jennifer. Exactly. Everything is going towards the good. God who is the source ultimately of all things, is also the 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 destination of all things. Everything are move, is moving towards the good, right? Um, the good of, you know, a rock or a paperclip might be simpler, right? The good of the human soul is participation with God. It's divinity, right? To become a God. Uh, to become God, in fact. To join with God uh, in participation. Um, yeah, yeah. To become divine, so that's the goal. So, the what is man? Question is about sort of origins, right? What is the what is the inner nature of man? What is the significance of the human soul? Uh, how is the world governed, right? It talks about that process, that innate desire to return to the good that all humans have because of what they are, right? Because of the humans, so- because of the nature of the human soul. And then, third, the goal and destination of all things is the good, right? That's what. Everybody went, And this is something, of course, you will remember, Lady Philosophy has repeated many times, right? All people seek happiness. It's, it's, it's a fact, right? Everybody seeks happiness. You can tell how everybody, you can, even just by how everyone's seeking it badly, right? And even by the people who are screwing it up, show that everybody seeks it, right? Everybody agrees that they want to be happy. Everybody is attempting to satisfy, everybody has a desire, and they're attempting to satisfy that desire right? Lady Philosophy argues that some do it better than others, right? More successfully than others, but everybody has that desire and is trying to, to satisfy it, right? Okay. Um. <laughs> Kevin Hensor says, well, they've quantified this stuff in the ancient and medieval world. Like, before Newton, did they have, like, units of love that would account for the parabolic trajectories of falling objects? No, I don't think so. I can't remember any uh, uh, unit of measure. Um, They didn't calculate motion uh, in the same ways. Um, I mean, that's one of the things that... Again, it's like another one of those things, right? Newton didn't discover gravity like... Believe it or not, folks had tumbled to the fact before Newton that things fell when you dropped them right? No stupid apple had to hit Newton on the head for people to figure out that gravity happened right um, uh, the 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 thing about Newton right was his uh, his laws of motion, right the way in which he was uh, Kevin sort of pushing things in exactly that way uh the 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 observations that he made about these general patterns of motion which were of a different kind uh than people had had before this just wasn't really a question uh that had been uh, uh that had been very important uh to people to 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 natural philosophy they knew a lot about gravity uh in fact again i mean i know i've said this before um but they knew for instance that gravitation uh, directs towards the center of a sphere. Not only did they know that the Earth was a sphere, but they knew that the gravitational center uh, that, that gravity would have a gravitational center at the center of the Earth, and that if you went past that gravity would work uh, the other way. Uh, this is in fact dramatized in the um, uh, in Inferno. Right? If you've read Dante's Inferno, you'll remember that down at the center of Hell, which is, uh, which is not an underground, it's not like a cave, it's more like a uh pit it's like a chasm it's in fact the chasm that was made when satan fell to earth and the earth shr- shrank away from him right so it's like the crater uh that uh that that satan made when he hits the earth that's what hell is in dante's uh, construction, and so he, uh, he Satan is down at the bottom, and they they need to crawl to the other side because of course Mount Purgatory is in the southern hemisphere, so they get down to the bottom of hell and then they they actually like crawl down the nasty hairy sides uh, of Satan as he 's lodged in the ice in the ninth circle, um, and when they get down to the bottom uh to the like to the center of the earth right? They actually have to, like, turn around upside down and start climbing up again. They, they know exactly how gravity worked. So there was a bunch of things um, there's a bunch of things that, that they understood well about things like gravity and motion. Um, but they didn't do a lot of uh, quantifying, uh, Kevin. I can't think of any clear instances of that. Um, does anybody know what um, uh, the the Where the center? What's at the center of the earth, according to Dante? Everybody know this? Satan, yes, yes. But what bit of Satan? It's important theologically. It's, it's not his belly button. Yes, Tony, you've got it. It's his genitalia. Um, uh, Dante makes like a slang penis joke. When they reach a certain punto uh, which is a slang Italian word for uh, for penis um, so yeah it's Satan's genitalia uh, which is at the center of the world um, this is uh, a point with important theological implications actually uh, and kind of um, really emphasizes the thing that modern people almost never understand about the geocentric worldview of the Middle Ages. Everybody talks like the geocentric worldview, um, you know, the geocentric model elevated the earth to, like, be super important, like, we're the center of the universe. No, no, Satan's genitals are the, are the center of the universe. Like, being at the center of the, of the revolving universe was not a good thing at all. Um, it's the outer rings of the universe that are the good stuff, right? That's where heaven is. Uh, so the picture is almost exactly inverted. Um, you know, when Copernicus comes along and says like, hey, the the, the earth is actually in space, right? It's, uh, you know, and he, he, he suggests the different model. He wasn't demoting the world as so many modern people think, right? No, see, the earth isn't the most important thing. It's just another rock going around an, an, another sun, right? That wasn't the point at all. Copernicus thought he was elevating, the Earth, right? No, no, no. The Earth is in the heavens, too. We're awesome also! Right? We're not, like, the, the off-scourings of the universe. We're not this, like, isolated, crappy little place with Satan's genitals at the center, right? We're we're like another one of the stars, right? They, they thought that that was actually the, like, up-with-Earth and, uh, and humanity movement. Uh, the traditional view was quite the opposite. Sorry. Okay. Digression. We'll move on. Um, (laughs) okay. Yeah. So, all right. Where were we? Uh, getting towards book four. That's where we were. We were summarizing. Okay. Uh, So we got our answers to our three questions. We're now ready to apply all of this, right? Back to the original question. And that's what Boethius brings us. The Boethius character brings us back to at the beginning of book four. Right. When she had finished and seemed about to continue her discourse, I broke in, still depressed by my personal grief. This is the first reference back to his personal grief we've had since book one, basically. Right. Uh, he's, so he he's it's this is, I think, a really important point. Right. He has heard everything and he's and we've seen how enthusiastically Boethius supports everything that Lady Philosophy has said. Right. So he gets all that. It's fine. Right. But what's he lacking yet? Right, application. He still needs to apply it to his own situation. He doesn't see exactly. Like all that stuff is great. That's fascinating. All those all those things that you've been saying about fortune and good fortune. How like good fortune is actually bad fortune, and bad fortune is actually good fortune. And you know all these other things we were looking at last week. This is all. This is all cool, uh, Lady Philosophy. But, um, but I'm still in prison, and it kind of sucks. Right. And so he's still wrestling with this. O guide to true light. All that you have so far told me is divine in itself and perfectly convincing by virtue of your argument. But although the sorrow caused by my misfortunes has made me forget these truths, I had not always been ignorant of them. Here, though, is the greatest cause of my sadness. Since there is a good governor of all things, how can there be evil and how can it go unpunished? Think how astonishing this is. But it is even more amazing that with wickedness in full control, virtue not only goes unrewarded, but is trampled underfoot by the wicked and is punished instead of vice. That this can happen in the realm of an all-knowing and all-powerful God who desires only good must be a cause of surprise and sorrow to everyone. Right? So Boethius comes back and says, Okay, great, but we still have an evil problem. Right? Evil is still a problem. Uh, for pretty much the same reasons he was pointing to back in book one, right? So let's let's look at the elements here again, right? Uh, what so Boethius? What is the greatest cause of your sadness? Um, how can there be evil when there is a good governor of all things, right? That's the general statement of it. But there's more specifics that he gives, right? How can the evil go unpunished? Even if even if evil happened, right? Even if evil were permitted to occur, how can it go unpunished? Right. I mean, it's strange enough that people should be able, should have the power to do evil when the world is governed by a good God. But how on earth could that go unpunished? How do they get away with it? It's astonishing. But it gets worse. Right. Wickedness is in full control. Right. So often we see this. Right. The, 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 the world is run by wicked people. And no, I'm not making a contemporary political reference. This has always been true. Right? This is true no matter who's president, and would have been true no matter who'd won the election. Uh, wickedness is in full control, and virtue not only goes unrewarded but is trampled underfoot by the wicked, and is punished instead of vice. How can that happen? How can how can anyone get away with that? Um. Surprise and sorrow, right? must be our reactions to such a situation. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Good. Look at Lady Philosophy's response. Time for some yeshad business. Philosophy answered... It would indeed be a monstrous thing, and astonishing to everyone, if, as you suppose, in the well-ordered house of so great a father, the vilest objects were cherished, and the most precious were regarded with contempt. But this is not the case. For if our previous conclusions are valid, and with the help of him whose kingdom we are now speaking of, you will discover that the good are always powerful, and the evil always weak and futile, that vice never goes unpunished, nor virtue unrewarded, that the good prosper, and the evil suffer misfortune, and much else, which will remove the causes of your complaint, and strengthen your convictions. And since, under my guidance, you have understood the essence of true happiness, and have found out where it resides, I shall now run through the steps in my explanation, which I think necessary, and show you the path which will take you home. This, in a nutshell, is Lady Philosophy's answer to the question of evil. And on the surface, it seems like a completely audacious answer to the problem of evil, right? Why is there so much evil? Why is there so much injustice, right? Why do the bad guys win? That shouldn't happen if there's a good God. And Lady Philosophy says it doesn't happen. The good guys never lose. The bad guys never win. Uh, virtue is never unrewarded. Nobody ever gets away with evil. It doesn't happen. There is no problem of evil. If you have a little yeshayad wisdom, right? Um, let's uh, look at some of the details here. But first, we stop for a poem. My wings are swift, able to soar beyond the heavens. The quick mind which wears them scorns the hateful earth and climbs above the globe of the immense sky, leaving the clouds below. It soars beyond the point of fire caused by the swift motion of the upper air until it reaches the house of stars. Notice, by the way, if you're familiar uh, with the layout of the geocentric universe, you can see, right? Uh, so the wings of philosophy soar beyond the heavens, there, meaning the sky, right? Um so you can uh the if, if the mind that wears the wings of philosophy right uh leaves the earth climbs above the sky right that is above the air leaving the clouds below beyond fire which is above air right so the 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 realm of fire is the topmost point the outermost point of the of the sphere of the mortal world right and it crosses into the immutable crosses into the ether crosses into the heavens right, into the land of the planets uh, and the regions of the planets and the stars, right? There it joins Phoebus in his path or rides with cold old Saturn, companion of that flashing sphere, running along the starry circle where sparkling night is made, right? So, go up, we're now up to the sphere of the Sun, which is the third of the celestial spheres, and we're out to the sphere of Saturn, right, which is the seventh of the celestial spheres, and then Finally, to uh, uh, into the starry circle, right out into the sphere of the fixed stars, which is the second to the highest uh, and furthest of all of the spheres, and this is important because uh, we have gone out uh, to, in medieval cosmology, the realm of divine providence, right, the the place where where God's providence is encoded, which is in the sphere of the fixed stars. When it has seen enough, that is the mind wearing the wings of philosophy, right? When it has seen enough, it flies beyond the farthest sphere to mount the top of the swift heaven and share the holy light, right? Uh, The geocentric uh, universe was a 3D universe, very definitively a 3D universe, but they didn't think of it as going out. They always thought of it as going up. Right? So when you go away from the Earth, you're always going up, even though they know like that it's three dimensions and it's a sphere. But nevertheless, they thought of it as going up. So you see, heaven is at the top of things. Right, Earth is at the bottom of things. That's why, again, Satan's genitalia, right? Uh, the center of the Earth is the bottom of the universe. The lowest of the low. Um, but at the top of the swift heaven is the holy light there the lord of kings holds his scepter governing the reins of the world with sure control he drives the swift chariot the shining judge of all things right if the road which you have forgotten but now search for brings you here you will cry out this i remember this is my own country here i was born and here i shall hold my place Right. And Narnia fans, if you're thinking of what Jewel cries out when he finds himself in Aslan's country, there's a reason for that. Right? This is It's a near Boethius quotation there. This is my own country. Here I was born, and here I shall hold my place. Uh, that is the response uh, of the Narnians upon reaching Aslan's country. Um, okay. Uh, then, if you wish to look down upon the night of earthly things which you have left, you will see those much-feared tyrants dwelling in exile here. Right? Essentially, it depends on your point of view. Right? If you are within the world, if you're operating from within uh, a worldly, fr- an entirely worldly framework, the much-feared tyrants right those who are both powerful and wicked who seem all powerful here in the world right they're the highest of the high right the emperor the king um you know those who have absolute power over us right the 1% um this is the, the they are the ultimate power but only if you're down on the ground right only if you're looking around from a worldly perspective if you go up to the top of heaven And you look down at the little speck of the earth, and you see the whole picture and how everything fits together, you realize those tyrants are actually dwelling in exile here. Their very tyranny is what exiles them, as we will come to see. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, Colin. Yeah, Colin has it, says it reminds him of the Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, realizing that hell was just a tiny crack in the ground uh, in heaven. Yes, yes. Uh, of course, it, it's not... Uh, well, I mean, really, actually, yes. The proportion is sort of similar. Um, everybody knew in the Middle Ages that the Earth was, t- was teensy compared to the size of, of the heavens. Um, you know, the distance between the world and the fixed stars was so great that the world was like... the size of a mathematical point, uh, with no dimensions. Um, but so yeah, yeah, Colin, in a sense that we can see that same sort of thing. Um, Kevin Hensler says medieval cosmology is so difficult because it seems like metaphor blends into their actual models of the literal cosmos. The boundaries aren't clear. Kevin, we do the same thing. Our metaphors uh, blend into our actual models of the literal cosmos. You can't do anything else if you're going to use language to describe things. The language that we use to describe even everything, right? Laws of nature, right? All that's a metaphor, right? We are continuously and persistently metaphorical. C.S. Lewis was great on this too. Um, uh, modern scientific language is not less metaphorical uh, in a sense. Kevin, one of the reasons I like the medieval cosmology and, and its language better uh, is that it's more self-aware of that, right? It kind of embraces that, uh, whereas modern, uh, modern language and modern um, uh, modern uh, uh, scientific terminology tries to pretend like it's objective and metaphor-free, right? It's not metaphor-free. None of it is metaphor-free. Um, anyway, yes, uh, Stephen Boethius did mention the, the, the business about the size of the Earth, Absolutely. Um yeah, good, let's see. uh Tomas, that's a good point. Somebody else had mentioned something about this earlier on as well. uh Tomas says it seems that for Boethius there is no doubt about uh you know which people are good and which people are evil, uh unlike for Tolkien. yes and no um i th- it's certainly true that Boethius uses very black and white terms right he talks about the wicked and he talks about the good um, I think the thing to remember here is that this is a, it, it they're talking in sort of philosophically abstract terms right so in a sense they're kind of deliberately simplifying um they acknowledge at several points that like people are i mean everyone's like on the road right um no one is there even good people are not haven't arrived at the destination, right? They haven't uh, achieved the good. They're just on the path to the good. Um, so it's not quite... It, I, I don't think that the, what Lady Philosophy and Boethius are arguing is 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 that it's, it's quite as black and white as that. Whereas, of course, when somebody like Tolkien is dramatizing um, good people and evil people and the fall of good people to become evil people and stuff... He's dealing with the whole thing from a on a different level, right? He, you know, he's he's dramatizing exactly that, whereas uh, Boethius is dealing with the sort of abstractions. Um, yeah. Um, See, David asks, is Boethius referring to the idea that hell is separation from God at the end of the poem uh, w- about the exile? No, uh, in fact, and this is important, I think, David. Later on, you may remember, towards the end of the, our section, towards the end of this first part of uh, Book Four, Boethius, the Boethius character, brings up the question of of eternal punishment, right? Punishment after death, and Lady Philosophy says, "Oh, yeah, that's important, but I'm not talking about that." right? Um, these things that she's describing here are about life and about the sort of the state and the status of things. Uh, the, feared, the much feared tyrants are in exile uh, here in the world, in a sense, almost like Boethius was in exile, right? Remember that's, that's, that was her diagnosis, was that he was self-exiled, right? The much feared tyrants are self-exiled, right? Self-exiled from their destined country, right? From their true home. From their uh, rightful goal and endpoint, um, that that's going to mean hell is related, but it's not a question that lady philosophy uh, is much interested in dealing with actually. Um, she's talking much more about the here and now. Uh, so let's uh, let's look at some specifics here. First the question of, powerlessness so one of the things that lady philosophy has asserted and reasserts here first lady philosophy answered you will agree that the good always have power and the wicked do not this is of course the first of these extremely counterintuitive claims that lady philosophy is going to make right these things that require our yeshayad to be functioning properly right um that first, you know, one of the, it would, this was of course one of the elements of the problem of evil as Boethius, uh, the Boethius character voiced it, right? Why is it that the bad people win? Why are the bad people in charge, right? Why do the wicked rule? That shouldn't be able to happen. Her answer they don't. It never happens. Evil is always powerless and good is always powerful. That's how it is, right? despite appearances okay so what is what does that mean let's say uh, i'm skipping a bit here do you recall that our early that earlier in our discussion we found that every intention of the human will is directed towards happiness however various its inclinations may be i remember that to have been proved and do you also recall that happiness is the good so that everyone who seeks happiness also desires the good I have not forgotten, I said. Indeed, I hold it fast in my memory. Therefore, all men, good and bad, have the same purpose in striving to obtain the good. And then, again, skipping a bit more, this is the bit that I'm skipping here, is where Lady Philosophy talks about like, defining power. Right? Um, if you desire to, you know, in order to be considered powerful, right, you have to have both the desire to achieve something and the ability to achieve it right? If you have both of those things, then you're powerful. If you don't, you're not powerful. If you don't, if you have the desire for something, but you can't get it, you're not powerful, are you, right? If you don't even have the desire for something, then what does it matter, (laughs) right? Um, Therefore, since both seek the good, both wicked people and good people seek the good, but good men obtain it and evil men do not, it follows that good men have power, but evil men are impotent. No, all of this stuff is built on the foundation. You can't just skip to book four, right? It's built on the foundation of book two and book three. Remember all of the review of the goods of fortune, right? Thinking about the thinking about book two, about all that fortune stuff, about how, you know, you know remember Boethius says, like, why, you know, fortune, why did you take all my stuff? And what does she say? I didn't take your stuff. Right? I took my stuff, right? It belongs to me. Uh, you don't own it. You don't own any of it. You don't own anything. All those things you call your possessions—they're not your possessions. They're not intrinsic to you. They're separate from you. You've laid claim on them, right? But they're not yours. I can prove it. Look, I'll take them away. I'll spin my wheel, and down you'll come, right? So, okay. So, this—this this is that was one of the first steps of. We need to reorient our thinking here. The way that we're used to talking about things, the way that we're used to thinking about things, the way the the basis on which we're used to judging. And in book three, we come to the bigger picture, right? What is it that matters? What is the essence of all things? What does everybody desire? Everybody desires happiness. Everybody desires the good. All of our desire for everything else, for wealth and power and honors and fame and everything else, and therefore everything else that we reach for and strive for and value and carry and care about because we think they're going to lead us to those things right all of those things are only bits and pieces remember of our desire for the good um it is that fundamental desire for happiness which we have attempted to obtain in fragmented ways but as lady philosophy has shown the frag in by by seeking it in fragmented ways we don't obtain it nor do we even obtain the little fragment that we're trying to reach for, right? So in that, like thinking in that context, recognizing what is it that, so true power is the ability to achieve your desire. Everybody desires the good. Everybody desires happiness. Evil people don't get there, right? They are powerless to achieve the good that everyone wants. They're powerless to achieve their own goal, which is happiness, Right. She comes at the same thing from a different perspective. Well, then she continued. The highest good is proposed, equi- is purposed, yeah, is no, is proposed equally to good and bad men. Good men seek it by the natural means of the virtues. Evil men, however, try to achieve the same goal by a variety of concupiscences, and that is surely an unnatural way of seeking the good. Don't you agree? I do indeed, and I see clearly the consequence of your line of reasoning, for it follows that the good are powerful and the wicked are impotent, right? Wicked people, by definition, right? What defines a wicked person is are those that are that are that are invested in vice instead of virtue, right? Um people who do bad things, right? If you do bad things, if you are in that means you're 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 going after those worldly goods, right? You're seeking happiness. But you're seeking it in an unnatural way. It's not going to work. You're seeking only a fragment of the good and you're going about it by a sketchy route. It's not going to work. Again, remember how much time Lady Philosophy spent on this, right? Can you achieve true happiness? Can you achieve the good? Can you achieve that divinity, which is the goal of human nature, right? By through vice through the seeking of worldly goods by vice no you can't it's not going to work um exactly jennifer they're stumbling drunkenly into the wrong houses they're never going to get home the power to get home is the only real power in the end that matters right the rest of it is all fleeting temporary and even indeed a distraction it's not only just that it's uh, lesser right um, uh, it's not just that it's um, uh, it's not merely that they, they they obtain only a lesser good and not the highest good right it's not a matter of degree the wicked who by vice, set out to achieve happiness because everybody sets out to achieve happiness but those who do it through vice right who seek to do it through 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 wicked deeds don't achieve it at all um that's uh, that's a big deal right and then this is what justifies lady philosophy in saying let's understand something evil people are never powerful can they have authority in the world? Sure, but but again, remember she's dealt with power, worldly power before, right? What is worldly power? What can a ty- what does a tyrant have control over? When you say that like wicked people are in charge in the world, right? That wicked people are powerful. What do you mean? What kind of power do they have? She's talked about this before. What kind of power do they have? What can the tyrant, um, what can the tyrant uh, 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 control? your stuff, your body. That's all that's in their power. So what? Uh, We'll we'll get more to this as we keep going. Um, Takako says, so wicked people are actually punishing themselves by going away from the true goal. Yes, exactly, exactly. They're harming themselves. They are preventing themselves. They are powerless by their choices, they have made themselves powerless to obtain the only end that everyone wants, which is happiness. They, can't, they have made happiness unavailable to themselves. Um, let's see. Tony says, uh, when I was reading this, the question kept coming up for me uh, over whether the only way evil can exercise power is through the good intentions of others. Uh, is that an ends-versus-means argument? Hang on a second. I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure that out, Tony. Uh, only way evil can exercise power is through the good intentions of others. Well, see. No. I, not not exactly. I mean, no, because they're not wielding the power then. Um, I mean, if something that they do comes from something good in somebody else, it's not them achieving... Like, again, power is defined as the ability to get what you want. That's what power is, right? So if power is the ability to get what you want, their actions can't get them what they want, and therefore they're not powerful. James, you're right. They think they're obtaining the good, right? They, 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 they may believe they've arrived. And as Lady Philosophy is going to go on to say later on in Book 4 here, that as we'll look at tonight, if they're in that state, James... That's the worst possible state they could be in. If they're deceived to that extent, because it's not true, they haven't arrived. If they think they have, so that they they stop even thinking that maybe they need to change in order to actually get where they're going. If they think they've arrived and they haven't, that's really sad. It's really sad. Um exactly nick those pursuing evil means are wholly incapable of achieving happiness of any real sort and nick it's that word real of any real sort they can achieve you know like unreal happiness right they they can achieve temporary they can achieve a state which might be mistaken for happiness they might get to a house that looks a lot like their real house but it isn't their real house right and it's not going to get them any closer to their real house and in the end they're probably not even going to be able to stay there and they certainly won't be permanently happy even within the 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 course of their own lives in that house because it's not really their home right it's not true happiness um Exactly, Catherine. This explains why the rich can be so unhappy. Catherine, if you go back to all that earlier stuff about the goods of fortune, like the analysis of wealth, that remember when twice she went through and looked at wealth and power and honors and all those other things, right? Um, she's building off of that, but also if you take what she says here in Book 4 and go back to those things, you can begin to see. She, she started with merely the observation. Notice that wealth claims to bring security. That's why everybody wants wealth, right? Because being secure is a good thing right? Having a, a, a happiness that nobody can take from you. That's a, that's, that's, that's a part of the good. That is an aspect of the good. And wealth seems to offer that. But of course, wealth doesn't grant it, right? You know, because when you have wealth, somebody can always take it away from you. So, uh, so she's observed that the rich can be unhappy, right? That these things do happen. But now we begin to see why Catherine in exactly that way, because it, Can't get you, it can't get you home. It's just gonna end up distracting you and confusing you, and ending up, in the worst case, making you labor under the delusion that you've arrived home when you haven't. Um. Yeah, exactly, Nick. Right, exactly. When you do seek wealth, it's never enough. Your income increases, so do your expenses. You never get a chance to actually rest. You never get at security. You never arrive. Home, you can't, it's not your home. Um, so yes, Tony, evil is always self destructive. Yes, it is. Um, exactly. Um, let's keep going. Think how grave is the impotence of wicked men for the goal which they are pursuing is not a trivial or frivolous thing they fail in the race for the very summit of all things they fail miserably to achieve even the things for which they struggle night and day and just here the powers of good men are clearly seen for as you would consider an effective walker one who could go on foot as far as it is possible to go so you must consider him to be most powerful who achieves the goal of all human desires the good beyond which there is nothing an obvious conclusion follows from this: the wicked are wholly deprived of strength. For why do they neglect virtue and pursue vice? Is it because they are ignorant of the good? Well, what greater weakness is there than the blindness of ignorance? Okay, so uh, that's no excuse, right? If that's that's a bad outcome, right? If they um, if they per- if they neglect virtue and perfu- and pursue vice because they don't know any better. That's bad. That's not a happy state, right? That's not strength. That's weakness. Or do they know what they should seek but are driven astray by lust? Okay, that's bad too, right? If so, they are made weak by intemperance and cannot overcome their vices. Or do they knowingly and willfully desert the good and turn to vice? Anyone acting that way loses not only his strength but his very being, since to forsake the common goal of all existence is to forsake existence itself. Um yeah yeah, uh and again, oh, I'm forgetting who it was who was bringing up um uh Colin the great divorce right uh, again it, thinking about c s lewis's uh picture of hell in the great divorce might might kind of come back up uh uh here um Lady Philosophy's assertions about like her answer to the problem of evil. Again, if you if 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 you just state it by itself, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? They don't. Right? That ultimately, that's her answer to the question: Why do bad things happen to good people? They don't. She says they never do. Bad things never happen to good people, and. That sounds like simply a complete denial, like, all right, you've done this sophistry and like convinced yourself that that, you know, black is white and everything's good. Right. Okay, But how is that relevant to the real world? Right. Lady philosophy would turn that exactly upside down on its head and say, no, 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 no. Your assertions about what you see going on around you right? Your assertion that bad things happen to good people all the time, that good people are often powerless to do anything, and that bad things happen to them despite their goodness. What does that have to do with the real world, right? That's not the real world. That's not what really matters. Uh, you're not looking at the big picture. You're not using your Sheadwisness, right? Um, you've got to... Um, uh, you've got to consider what really matters. She's looking at the big picture, right? Remember from the top heaven, right? Looking down uh, upon all, from from God's perspective. Nothing in the world matters. It's all, in the end, you know, Tony in one sense, this all becomes an ends and means question, right? Um, And again, it's one of the things that she said about the goods of fortune and everything way back in book two and book three. Right? The problem is people mistake these things for ends when at best they're means, right? But of course the goods of fortune aren't even really means uh, to the end. Um, but if you're just thinking about brief and temporal things, Lady Philosophy says that's not, that's not what matters, right? Remember at the beginning of class when I said, uh, you know, on the first day when I said there are going to be lots of things, lots of times when it when it uh, is going to sound really facile, right? Like, well, this is easy for you to say, Boethius, that like, you know, hey, temporal suffering is no big deal, right? You've just got to look at the big picture, man. Like, okay, bad things. You might think that bad things are happening to, but they're not really bad, right? Uh, not if you look at the big picture. Um, and one might be tempted, to, you know, if one is... Going through difficulties in one's own life, you know, it might make you want to reach out and smack Boethius and say that's easy for you to say, Buster. But remember, he has lost everything that he has. He is unjustly imprisoned and is going soon to be executed for that. Um, so he, he he knows, I you know, there probably aren't too many people listening to this who could actually one-up Boethius as far as his actual personal situation is concerned. Um he is suffering to a very significant degree, um, so uh, it's in that context that he is saying these things. That you know that Lady Philosophy is pointing to this stuff. Um, yes, exactly, Brian. Um, Lady Philosophy argues that you have to change the way you view and think about bad things. Wh- what you define as a bad thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Nick, it is. Um, I do think I, I, I would agree, Nick, that Sam Gamge has a Boethian moment, right? In that beautiful moment when he sees the star, um, in Mordor, right, and realizes that the shadow is really just a passing thing after all, um, the hope that leads Sam Gamgee to, you know, roll over and go to sleep next to Frodo, right, and trust that everything's going to work out, um, that's a Boethian moment, right? In that moment, Sam has an insight, which is something like what Lady Philosophy is pointing to here, right? Sam hasn't worked out all this stuff, right? He's not thinking in Lady Philosophy's terms, but that fundamental insight, In the end, look, I mean, things look pretty bad just then in Mordor, right? Um, But even from there, even with what they see around them, even the situation that, you know, the sort of horrible and desperate situation that they're in, at the end of the day, it's just a small and passing thing, right? There is light and high beauty that no shadow can touch. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's it's up in the top heaven right? And the thing that Lady Philosophy would add to Sam there, right, the insight that Sam doesn't really vocalize, right, is and this is your destiny. This is your home. Right? And if your orientation is not towards that, right, um, if you get invested in the temporal things of the world around us, then you're like the drunken guy, right? You're staggering down the wrong road. Um, you're gonna, you're gonna miss your house. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Kay asks a really interesting question. Okay, Kay says, um, uh, t- talking about the end of this about. Um, uh, losing his very being, since to forsake the common goal of all existence is to forsake existence itself. Uh, Kay says, this sounds like a person who chooses to fully immerse in evil. uh, Sorry, a person who chooses to fully immerse in evil does not, in fact, exist forever in the never-ending torment of hell, but simply ceases to exist. I don't think, Kay, I don't think she's talking about hell here. Um... I don't think I quoted this in a passage because I didn't want to get too distracted about it. But uh, remember what Lady Philosophy says about evil people, right? She says, I don't deny that evil people are evil. I deny that they're people, right? But it's not just the thing that she does with the animals, right? How they degrade themselves below the human body. How she words it is much stronger than that. Um, Lady Philosophy says, I don't deny that they're evil, I deny that they are, that they, that they exist in any real sense, right? That is the way in which I think she's talking about forsaking existence here, right? Because um, again, here she's talking about, back to that first question that Boethius got wrong, right? What does it mean to be human? What is a human? What is the, the whole, like, ontological function of the human being? If an evil person is, by definition, one who has abandoned that, one who has turned away from that, they're not just like a person who has taken the wrong turn. They have ceased to be a person. They've abandoned personhood. They've abandoned existence. Not in the sense that they are like, you know, they become, they pop out of being exactly. Again, it's not talking about, I don't think weighty philosophy is talking about, um, you know, literal uh, um, uh, negation. No, wait, what, what's the word? Um, uh nothingness uh, uh, you know like the nothing in the never-ending story that's not the kind of uh, uh, forsaking of existence uh, that she's talking about here um, uh, privation that's the word I was looking for the Shakespearean word privation um, she's not talking about pri- complete pri- they, again they don't just wink out of being right but they cease to exist in the sense that they are fulfilling they are their their destiny they they, they cease to be uh, they don't fit in to the whole picture anymore. Um, unmen like Weston, That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that's interesting. Uh, yeah. See, K. I don't. I, when it thinks about thinking about hell and about continuing existence in hell, Lady Philosophy dodges that, or sort of pushes it aside um she's not talking about heaven and hell she's not she she um doesn't like refuse the afterlife she acknowledges the existence of the afterlife um and the significance of it and by implication k she does say that uh the souls of evil people are not annihilated right because she does talk about never ending uh uh punishment but she's then quick to turn the conversation back and say, but that's not what I'm talking about. Right. Uh, so it would be, uh, I would have a hard time trying to apply, uh, directly these doctrines with any, to the, 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 the question of the afterlife with any real confidence that I'm, that I'm following Boethius's, uh, train of thought, uh, in that sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah in a sense yeah Brian says she's offering a consolation of philosophy, you know again, not the consolation of 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 theology or the consolation of uh of of sort of spirituality um in a sense yeah uh, i i mean i think It's not like it's not accessible to reason. It's totally accessible to reason. I mean, here we were just reasoning about it, right? My only question is that I'm not exactly sure how Lady Philosophy would reason about it because she declines to talk about it here. Uh, And so I don't want to... I mean, I could do my own speculating. Uh, Of course, I'm usually not shy to do that. Um, But it would just become my own speculation rather than trying to... You kind of capture what lady philosophy is getting at here um yeah ah interesting jenny jenny uh, uh Visek says it reminds her of the uh, talking animals that ceased to be talking animals uh in the last battle uh in the chronicles of narnia uh yeah 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 it's like that um i think that's a really good uh that's a really good parallel um yeah yeah um Okay, Um, let's see. Oh, a a, a quick, uh, somebody who I think was new uh, here in the Twitch chat. Um, Everybody's trying to achieve happiness. Well, this is, again, this has been a a basis of her argument for a long time. No, there isn't a middle ground. Um, Because it's not about being content with how things are. Um, The fact that you have desires of any kind. Right um, if your contentment itself implies a desire, contentment implies a satisfied desire right um, but uh uh anyway yeah no there's there's no there's no middle ground everybody uh is seeking uh happiness, everybody is seeking fulfillment. There are many who feel fulfilled right um the, like there are like many wicked people for instance, who uh through their wicked deeds get rich and powerful. Uh, and die that way, lady philosophy is not sexy this is uh this is one argument um this is one argument that some people make right that some medieval thinkers made about this they'd say like well it doesn't really work out long-term, right? Like, uh, sooner, or la- sooner or later, every evil person, like, will realize it, right? And, like, rep- and, you know, regret it. And m- maybe they don't repent or, but, you know, but it's not going to work out long-term. Lady Philosophy doesn't go there, right? She's like, oh, yeah, there are definitely people who achieve worldly success, think they've arrived, and they die happy, right? Temporally happy. They die content, thinking that they've arrived and that they've won, Right. And those people are the saddest people of all. Right. That is. We should pity the wicked, Lady Philosophy says. Right. And the more deluded they are, the more pitiable they are. Let's keep going. Those high and mighty kings you see sitting on high in glory. This is from the poem at the end of uh, section two there. Those high and mighty kings you see sitting on high in glory, dressed in purple, surrounded by armed guards, can breathe cruel fury, threaten with fierce words. But if you strip off the coverings of vain honor from those proud men, you will see underneath the tight chains they wear. Lust rules their hearts with greedy poisons. Rage whips them, vexing their minds to stormy wrath. Sometimes they are slaves to sorrow, sometimes to delusive hope. This is the picture of individual man with all his tyrant passions. Enslaved by these evil powers, he cannot do what he wishes. This is the picture of individual man. By the way, coming back to the whole black and white question, right, about how, like, how can you tell, like, which people are the wicked people and which people are the good people and, and the way that in, in in talking about these abstract categories of the good and the wicked, uh, it sounds like Lady Philosophy is really kind of simplifying things and saying there are some people who are like, great, and there are other people who are really horrible. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's like probably my friends who are the good people and, and uh, my enemies who are the wicked people. Um and I guess, but I was, so I was talking about how this is, again, speaking in philosophical abstractions about goodness and wickedness uh, manifesting itself in, in human lives. That last sentence we get a glimpse here, right? On the one hand, this poem starts off talking about the, that abstraction again, in a sense, right? Those high and mighty kings, uh, those wicked people who are in power. Um, and they appear to be in power. All the externals suggest that they're in power, even what they're able to do, right? They are powerful. They can breathe cruel fury. They can threaten with fierce words. Um, But if you strip off the coverings, underneath, they wear chains, right? They are, in fact, slaves. Slaves to their own passions. uh, Slaves to the worldly pleasures that they have set up as their happiness, right? That they have uh, defined futilely as their happiness, which is only keeping them from getting uh, to their true happiness. Um, But then notice what what she does at the end of the poem. This is the picture of individual man with all his tyrant passions, right? So the wicked tyrant ruling a nation of... uh, apparently powerful ruling a nation of people that is itself only a metaphor for the tyrant passions which so often rule within the souls of individual men right so here we can see how the things that she's talking about in these kinds of abstract uh, uh philosophical terms apply internally to everybody right we all have problems with passions and are often enslaved by our desire by our by our by our passions, right? Um, Enslaved by evil powers and and prevented from doing what we wish because all of those desires um, that, you know, are are those those desires which are derived from which are corruptions of that seeking of true happiness which make us uh, take the detours, right? Down the street of pleasure down the street of wealth, right? All of those things uh, that are leading us astray Um, we're bound to all of those things we struggle, with all of those things. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. Um, <laughs> three people at once were all reminded of uh, Jacob Marley uh, and his chains uh, David, Jenny, and Patricia, all three of you. At the same in the same timestamp, all made the same uh, reference to the Christmas Carol. That's really cool, actually. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, um, Yeah, yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Um, And uh, certainly, uh, it's interesting to look at the Christmas Carol from a Boethian perspective, right? Uh, You can see uh, some of these principles uh, still at work there. All right. Oh, by the way, sorry, I should explain my, uh, uh, I was picking up on that, on the, not the morally thing, uh, but the, 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 this last line about the individual man in my subtitle, I couldn't resist the subtitle. Uh, the subtitle is from Shakespeare's Measure for Measure. I just taught a Measure for Measure class in our, uh, Signum Shakespeare class last term. Uh, and so I've been reminded of that central speech, um, that central speech in, uh, in that play, um when uh, Isabella says, but man, proud man, dressed in a little brief authority, most ignorant of what he's most assured, his glassy essence, that is, the essence, the soul of him, which reflects, because it's a glass, it's a mirror, reflects the soul of God. Um, most ignorant of what he's most assured, his glassy essence, plays such fantastical tricks before high heaven as makes the angels weep. Um, man is only dressed in a little brief authority, right? The apparent power of people is, is an illusion, right? It's little and it's brief, right? It's not real power. It's not real authority. And the tricks that the, that people in power play are fantastical tricks in the end. That is is, they're tricks of the fantasy, that part of your brain, it's up here. It's in the front part of your head. Everybody knows this. Um, uh, according to, Medieval psychology and uh, neuroscience—that is—so uh, <clears throat> your fantasy uh, is, where, is, is what enables you to imagine things that you've that don't exist, right? That you've never seen before, uh, and so a fantastical trick is a trick of that kind. Um, ultimately, uh, that th- those who are wicked who are claiming authority—but again, it's not just that, right? It's not just that the people in authority, as Boethius says here, it's not just the people in authority are uh are playing fantastical tricks right are imagining that they're that they're greater than they are we who see them that way are also being fantastical right we're 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 not seeing reality we're not seeing what really is um yeah yeah Tony says that uh, Dickens uses the same phrase, brief authority in the Christmas carol. See, look at that. It's all in Dickens, right? It's all in Dickens. What do they teach them in these schools these days? All right. Do you see now, Lady Philosophy says, the mire in which vice wallows and the light in which probity shines. This shows clearly that the good are always rewarded and the wicked always punished. Remember, this was another of the elements of the problem of evil that boethius was saying why does wickedness pay right why are why why are the good not rewarded and lady philosophy's answer right the good are always rewarded wickedness never pays ever 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 there's not one single example of things working out well for a wicked person right you might think you know of some but you don't right The aim or goal of an action may justly be said to be the reward of that action. As in a race, the prize a man competes for is said to be the reward. We have demonstrated that happiness is the good for which all things are done. Absolute good, therefore, is set up as a kind of common prize for all human activity. Now this prize is always achieved by good men, and further, no one who lacks the good may rightly be called a good man therefore men of moral probity always achieve their reward no matter how the wicked rave the wise man never loses his prize nor does it ever diminish good is always rewarded it doesn't matter if they get money or power or pleasure or comfort again that's those are the those are the blind alleys right that's not the reward the reward is Happiness, absolute good. And they get that, and it can't be taken away from them. By definition, remember we did that in chapter, in book two and three, right? Um, the good good people always achieve their reward. And bad people, they have their reward, right? Um, they strive for money if they achieve it. They have their reward. Right? And yes, I am deliberately echoing Jesus there. I'm deliberately echoing gospel language here because I can't possibly not think of that here uh in this passage. Um yeah, exactly. They um they they, they get what they strive for, but it's not what they really want. They've deceived themselves, right? The wicked are always punished. The good are always rewarded. The wickedness of others does not deprive virtuous men of their glory. That's not possible. No wicked person has the power to take away ultimate happiness from good people. Again, remember back to Boethius in Book 1, right? Oh, the wicked people have taken everything away from me. And Lady Philosophy is like, no, they haven't, right? What have they taken? They've taken away. Remember fortune? Like, no, they didn't take away your stuff. They took away my stuff. Well, what's his stuff, right? The only thing that is really his is true happiness, is goodness, right? And true happiness. And the wicked people can't take that away from him by doing injustices to him, by taking away all of his stuff, by stripping him of his power, by by demeaning his fame, all of the things that they've done to him, ultimately, you know, beating him to death or strangling him, um, are they going to be taking away his reward? No. How can they? How could they? Right? That, has, that doesn't enter into it. It has nothing to do with it, with the achievement of the real desire. Um, and what a reward it is, the greatest and best of all. For recall the corollary I showed you before and make this inference. Since the good is happiness, all good men are made happy by the fact that they are good. And we have already shown that those who are happy are gods. Therefore, the reward of good men, which time cannot lessen, nor power diminish, nor the wickedness of any man tarnish, is to become gods. Again, as she argued back in book three. Right? So, in if God is good and 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 all powerful. How is it that good people are, you know, get the shaft? Answer, they never get the shaft. It's impossible. Right? Um and those evil people who thrive, right? Since this is so, the wise men can be certain of the punishment of the wicked. No wicked person ever gets away with it ever ever ever. For since good and evil Reward and punishment are opposites. The rewards of the good necessarily indicate the opposite, the punishment of the wicked. Therefore, just as virtue is the reward of virtuous men, so wickedness itself is the punishment of the wicked. Certainly, when a man is punished, he knows that he suffers evil. And, if they think about their condition, those who are not only tainted but even infected by vice, the worst of all evils, consider themselves free from punishment? Consider the punishment which afflicts the evil as compared with the rewards of the good. You learned earlier that whatever is is one, and whatever is one is good. It follows then that whatever is must also be good. And it follows from this that whatever loses its goodness ceases to be. Thus wicked men cease to be what they were, but the appearance of their human bodies which they keep shows that they were one that they once were men. To give oneself to evil therefore is to lose one's human nature. Just as virtue can raise a person above human nature, so vice lowers those whom it has seduced from the condition of men beneath human nature. For this reason, anyone whom you find transformed by by vice cannot be counted as a man. Wickedness makes people lose even themselves, right? Even that which they are, that which they seem to have. Right? Um... Again, it's, it's not possible for evil not to be punished. It is its own punishment because by its nature, you are preventing yourself from getting to the good. And in doing so, you're extinguishing yourself. Remember, because that's part of that definition of mankind, right? What does it mean to be human? What it means to be human is to be divine, right? And to be, to be, to be seeking to return, to the divine, by that desire, that love that is placed within us by God to bring us back towards God. Notice, see, I just did all three of the, the questions he got wrong in a row, right? That's the ultimate, that's the meaning of life. That's the whole point of everything. That's what it means to be human. To be evil is to to deny all of that, ultimately to lose that. Uh, it's banishment, but it's self banishment. Um yeah, yeah. Um yeah. Um yes, exactly, James. Evil distances one from from God. Yes, yes. Um and yeah Tony, I agree. Tony says uh you know it makes him think of like uh, Darth Vader losing his physical humanity right becoming like less and less a complete person um, Gollum right uh, uh, diminishing and withering ultimately the wraithification process, right right Tony um, and uh, uh, Voldemort looking less than human yes that that's a that's a common trend right that that idea of sort of like of the degradation of humanity uh the more Voldemort divides his soul the less human he becomes right uh the more he tries to secure immortality uh the less uh powerful ultimately his own soul becomes um and uh and yes what happens to all evil things in tolkien ultimately right they destroy themselves whether most explicitly with ungoliant right at last consuming herself or gollum or uh sauron in his making of the ring you know or melkor in his uh, uh dispersal of himself among all of his servants and uh the iron crown that is beaten into a collar for his neck um yeah yeah um this principle that evil is ultimately self-defeating that in a sense evil is its own punishment uh and it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what the apparent results are during the course of our lives right again uh, a wicked person can die you know peaceful and cheerful and uh you know surrounded by wealth and pleasure right it again at the end of the day it just from lady philosophy's standpoint right uh, is is just more sad um yeah um yeah good um Sorry, I'm thinking about, Brianna's thinking about distancing from God and the void uh as Tolkien depicted the void. I don't want to get sidetracked on that Brianna. I don't think that's actually uh when Tolkien talks about the void in the Inlandaway um I don't think we're talking about sort of distance from God. Um, the void in uh uh in the is more like the blank canvas upon which creation is going to be painted, right? Um, not necessarily an absence from God. I don't see that as a sort of a a, a a a sort of an ontological progression there. Um. Anyway, okay. Talking about similar thing in poetic form. This is the Circe poem, talking about Odysseus. Uh, And, of course, the sorceress Circe, who gave the potion to uh, all of Odysseus's men and turned them into pigs. Nevertheless, his sailors greedily drank the evil cups. They were changed into swine and turned from food to husks and acorns. No part of them remained unchanged. They lost both voice and body. Only the mind remained to mourn the monstrous change they had suffered. So the conversion of, of Odysseus's men into pigs is taken as a kind of metaphor, right, of uh, what happens to evil people. But see how weak was the power of the goddess and her impotent herbs. She had power over the bodies of men, but could not change their hearts. The strength of man is within, hidden in the remote tower of the heart. Poisons which can make him forget himself are more potent and deadly than Circe's because they corrupt the inner man. They do not harm the body, but they horribly wound the mind. I love what he does here, right? First of all, notice he, on the one hand, he says the, this image, right, this poetic image of the men being transformed into swine is like a metaphor for what happens to evil people. But wait, it's also an illustration of how wicked people can't really affect people, right? So the hearts of, the, of Odysseus's men weren't changed, Right, they were turned into pigs, but there so if there were presumably there were good men among Odysseus's men, right, and they would not be deprived of their reward. Circe could turn them into pigs, but she couldn't keep them away from ultimate happiness, right? Um so if there were good and virtuous men among Odysseus's men, they would have uh, they would have achieved their reward, and she could have turned them to pigs all they wanted, all she wanted, and it wouldn't have done any good, right? So it's both a metaphor for what she says happens to evil people naturally, and it's also an illustration of the pow- ultimate powerlessness of evil people. Um, poisons, which—and then then she takes and uses the metaphor in a different way, right? The strength of man is within, hidden in the remote tower of the heart. Poisons which can make him forget himself are more potent and deadly than Circe's because they corrupt the inner man. So again, back to that original metaphor, right? Um, the 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 passions, the vices, all of those temptations and uh, and ignorance and, and 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 mistakes and wickedness that end up sending people down those um, those wrong paths, right? ...into things that they think are happiness... ...towards goals that they think are happiness... ...but are not really. These things are poisons... ...and they ultimately make him forget himself even worse... ...than Cersei's poison did... ...because they corrupt the inner man. Um, Ultimately, what happens to evil people... ...he says... ...or she says here at the end of her poem... ...is the reverse of what Cersei did. Right? Cersei changed the body... ...but couldn't change the heart. Evil changes the heart even though it doesn't change the body. Wicked people still look like people, right? But ultimately, they're not. They've turned away. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Pinocchio being turned into a donkey is totally a Circian thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Oh, yeah, Evan, no, Boethius knew all the Greek stuff. He... Boethius read Homer. Um, Boethius is right at the right at the um, the point of time when but b- before before we lost Greek uh, in Western Europe. Um, so he he had read Plato and Aristotle and Homer and everybody in Greek. Uh, in fact, he did many, many translations from Greek into Latin uh, but um, um, yeah, yeah, so he would have actually known Homer. okay. When she had finished, I said, I see that you are right in saying that. Although the vicious, although vicious men keep the appearances of their human bodies, they are nevertheless changed into beasts as far as the character of their souls is concerned. Still, I wish that these cruel and wicked minds were not permitted to ruin good men. Notice Boethius is, uh, is still kind of focused on, he's still not getting it, right? Um, uh, he's, he's, still looking at worldly things, permitted to ruin good men, right? And she's like, they are not permitted to do that, (laughs) right? That doesn't happen, right? Um, As I shall show you at the proper time. If, however, the power which they are thought to have were taken from them, their punishment would be greatly diminished. Again, it's like when you look at things from the perspective of the top heaven, right? When you fly up with the wings of philosophy, you think it's it's like opposite world, right? Nothing works the same way that we assume that it works from our temporal perspective, right? We think that it's just, as Boethius was just saying, right, and it's kind of awful that they're allowed to wield as much power as they do over good men, right? Wicked people, I mean, right? Um... And she's like, if that power were taken away from them, their punishment would be less. Wait, so they'd be punished less? No, no, no. They would receive less punishment because the power that they have is their punishment. Four, though this may seem incredible to some, the wicked are necessarily more unhappy when they have their way than they would be if they could not do what they wanted to do. So an evil person who is thwarted is benefited. Right? If they are restrained, from pursuing their evil course, they're better off. The worst thing that could happen to an evil person is that they're given their head, that they're enabled to do, to pursue the path that they want to pursue. That's the real, that's the worst thing. That's the greatest punishment. Uh, why do evil people win, right? Big picture, they don't, Right because winning is defined as achieving the goal and they don't achieve their goal. But even within the context of worldly things, why do wicked people win? Cuz that's their punishment. Right? Worldly victory. It's not just that it doesn't matter, cuz it does matter. It does matter because it is their punishment. Again, the worst thing that can happen to an evil person is that they succeed and that they end up um they end up believing themselves to be happy. Okay, um, let's see. Wait, hang on. Where was I? Uh, okay, for the all right. The wicked are necessarily more unhappy when they have their way than they would be if they could not do what they wanted to do. If it is bad to desire evil, it is worse to be able to accomplish it. For if it were not accomplished, the disordered, the disordered, that is the the disordered will, right? That is the wicked will, would be ineffectual. So when you see someone with the will and power to commit crime actually commit it. You know that he is necessarily the victim of a threefold misfortune. For each of those three things, the will, the power, and the act itself contains its own punishment. Yeah. Uh, It's bad to have the desire to commit a crime. It's worse to have both the desire and the power to commit the crime. It's worse to, to commit the crime, right? Worse for you, that is. Worse for the wicked person in question. So far, I have tried to make you see that the power of evil men which you find intolerable does not exist, and that those same men, whom you think go unpunished, really never escape the penalties of their wickedness. Further, I have shown that their apparent impunity is short-lived, that the longer it goes on, the unhappier they become, and that if it were eternal, they would be absolutely wretched. Finally, I have proved that wicked men who unjustly escape punishment are more miserable than those who are justly punished." And it follows from this, that when they seem to escape chastisement, they are in reality undergoing more severe punishment. So you can see the summary of all that. I skipped the section where she talked about uh, um, how wicked men who unjustly escape punishment are more miserable than those that are justly punished. Um, But it follows the same principles as what we've been seeing before. Kay, by the way, notice she does kind of glance out the corner of her eye at the eternity question, right? At the hell question. Uh, here. Uh, if it were eternal, they would be absolutely wretched. Right. Further, I have shown that their apparent impunity is short-lived, and the longer it goes on, the unhappier they become, and if it were eternal, they would be absolutely wretched. What is hell? What is absolute wretchedness? What is damnation? What is perpetual torment? Answer? Continuing on in that same state um a wicked person who is satisfied with their wickedness and thinks that they've won and goes on into eternity believing that they've won while eternally being deprived you know failing to achieve the goal and desire of their soul that's that's bad right that's 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 hell and again if you've read the great divorce it's a lot like cs lewis's hell uh or rather cs lewis's Clearly, thinking of Boethius. Uh, uh, in this, um, yeah, yeah, um, yes, Stephen is Stephen covers remembering Tolkien's comment. We talked about this. Um, uh, we talked about this last night. Um, that. The uh, how Tolkien calls death a gift, and in his letters, Tolkien uh, uh, says that you know what of God's punishments are not also gifts, right? Um, yes, that that equation between gift and punishment, uh, or punishment and gift, right? That whenever God punishes a, or sends a punishment, it is also a gift, right? Um, yes, I do think that, that we can see some uh, some uh, Boethius underlying that. That concept there. Um, yeah, and Tony, I agree. I think that you can say, you can look at the Ring Wraiths as an illustration of exactly the kind of thing that Lady Philosophy is describing here, right? Um, their desires, right? Their wicked desires, what they were willing to do in order to achieve the desire, you know, they desired immortality uh, and they were willing to, 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 uh, uh, to do terrible things, right? And to serve Sauron in order to get it right? And they, on the one hand, they have their reward, right? They achieved it, and yet they haven't achieved it, right? They have uh, um, their the achievement of their desire is its own punishment. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, good. Um Boethius, the Boethius character, does raise the objection that I know a lot of modern people have to Lady Philosophy's argument, right? To her, her answer, why do bad things happen to good people? They don't, right? Uh, and he's like, okay, when I consider your argument, I find that nothing could be more true. But if we consider the ordinary judgment of men, who, who, is, likely to f- uh, who is likely to find these ideas credible or who will even listen to them? So he's like, OK, this is great. I'm totally convinced. But how could I tell anybody else about this? Right. If I go around saying, hey, bad things don't happen to good people. Evil people are totally powerless and uh, good people are never deprived of their reward. Everyone's just going to say I'm an idiot. Right. Because they can all see that it's obviously not true. Right that is true lady philosophy answered because men cannot raise eyes accustomed to darkness to the light of clear truth they are like those birds who can see at night but are blind in the daylight for as long as they fix their attention on their own feelings rather than on the true nature of things they think that the license of passion and immunity from punishment bring happiness right that's a that's a really fun definition of the normal uh like the normal definition of happiness right uh You know, what does it mean to succeed? What does it mean to get ahead in life? Right. What does it mean to win at life? License of passion and immunity from punishment. Right. To have whatever I want and get away with it. Right. That's basically how we all define success. Right. Um, uh, But think of the sanctions of eternal law. If you conform your spirit to better things, you have no need of human approval and reward. You have placed yourself among the more excellent, but if you turn to what is cheap and low, do not expect someone else to punish you. You will have lowered yourself into a you will have lowered yourself into a condition of squalor, right? I mean, in the end, her answer to the question to the counterintuitiveness factor, right? Uh, you know, when Boethius is like, "Of the problem, you know, how can we say this to anybody? No one's going to listen," right? Um, and her answer ultimately is. Not everyone is going to get it, right? People aren't going to see this, right? Why not? Because people are, are, if they're invested in a false definition of happiness, if people really believe that, they, that happiness equals license of passion and immunity from punishment, right, um, then they're not going to buy it. They're going to think that wicked people win. they're like owls right who can see in the dark but are blind uh in the daylight um <laughs> james says like uh like gollum whose eyes were turned downward and who shook his fist at the yellow face yes exactly i uh, had almost forgotten this um yeah yeah exactly um yes Corita, there is indeed a New Testament verse uh, in John 1 that talks about light coming into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Yes, yes, you'll notice that uh, Boethius isn't quoting that, right? But uh, but yeah, it does kind of sound like it, doesn't it? You're right, Corita, exactly, John, that's in John 1. Absolutely. Yep, um, yep, yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. So look at our conclusion. From this, then, and for other reasons, based on the principle that wickedness by its very nature makes men miserable, we see that an injury done to another causes unhappiness in the doer rather than the recipient. And if the wicked themselves could somehow see the virtue they had abandoned, and could be convinced that they could free themselves from the strain of vice and acquire virtue by undergoing punishment, they would ignore the pain, dismiss their lawyers, and give themselves up entirely to their accusers and judges. Right? In this way, wise men could abolish hatred, for no one but a fool would hate good men, and hating evil men would make no sense. Viciousness is a kind of disease of the soul, like illness in the body. And if sickness of the body is not something we hate, but rather regard with sympathy, we have much more reason to pity those whose minds are afflicted with wickedness, a thing worse than any sickness. Uh, Nick, earlier on you raised the really important point about how this idea, the, the ideas that Lady Philosophy was saying about how wicked people cease to be people, really. Um, Nick, you were voicing about how, how easy that would be to abuse right you know like to 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 justify the slaying of the infidels because they're not really people, right um, agreed absolutely, and of course that kind of abuse has often happened, but notice this is lady philosophy's answer to it, right uh, hatred is right out um you don't despise the wicked, you pity the wicked, right um it's like a disease, and again here's where this is the difference between the sort of Uh, from a height, philosophical terms, absolutes, right, of goodness and wickedness, to, again, that examination of the human soul, the real, like, concrete, you know, shades of gray human soul that everybody has, right? Um, Wicked people are people whose minds are afflicted with wickedness, right? They're people, right? They have the same desire for happiness. They have the same divine soul, but they have wickedness like a disease, right? It's worse than a sickness. And we should regard them with sympathy Um, because ultimately that sickness is a terminal sickness. They're not going to get better from it, right? If they don't turn back. Um, uh, So ultimately, this is the, this is the, uh, Nick, when it comes to like, Putting these abstract principles onto flesh and blood human beings, this is where Lady Philosophy goes with it, right? Um, wise men, if you see the whole picture here, right? Um, if you have your, you know, Yeshayahu uh, Wisdom, then it it abolishes hatred. You can't hate anybody. Obviously, I am not going to hate good people, and there is no point hating bad people. Um, they're sick. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Boethius still has a question. right So this comes to the end of uh, tonight's section, just in time. Uh, but let's look at the setup for next time. Then I said, so Boethius asks, "I understand that happiness and misery come to good and wicked men according to their merits. still, I find that there is a mixture of some good and some evil in every man's fortune, as that term is properly understood. Surely, no wise man wants to live in exile, poverty, and ignominy. He would rather live prosperously in his own country and enjoy riches, honors, and the exercise of power. The operation of wisdom is manifested more effectively and recognized more clearly when the happiness of those who govern is shared by the people. And this is especially true when imprisonment and other consequences of legal punishment are imposed on the criminals for whom they were intended. That is, like, it's, things are kind of better when, like, the system is just and justice is applied. right? Therefore, I am amazed and shocked to find this ideal turned upside down, so that punishments designed for the wicked are imposed on good men, and the rewards of virtue are seized by the wicked. I wish you would tell me how such unjust confusion can possibly be explained, for I would be less surprised if I could believe that all things happened as a result of accidental chance. But my belief in God and his governing power increases my amazement. Since he often gives joy to the good and bitterness to the wicked, but on the other hand, reserves this dispensa- on the other hand reverses this dispensation, how can all this be distinguished from accidental chance unless we understand the, causes of, the cause of it? Note two things. First of all, Boethius has not let go of the worldly things completely, right? He still thinks it matters. He still insists that it matters, right? Okay, okay, yeah, I I get the fact, he says, right? I get the fact that all that ultimately matters is, like, the true happiness, right? And that, you know, good people can't have their reward taken from them. Okay, agreed. But still, they kind of get a raw deal, Right. I mean, bad things, even if not the biggest bad thing, you know, still do happen to good people. And good things, even though even though not like the good thing still happen to bad people. Right. Okay, granted that that's not what really matters ultimately. Fine. But still in the short term, it's still better to have good things than bad things in the world. Right. In other words, what he's doing is going back to book two, in a sense, and all those things that were said about fortune and fortune is like, hey, I'm in charge of stuff and I do things arbitrarily. Right. I take stuff away and I mix it up and it's uh, it doesn't make any difference. And he's like, OK, why does that happen? Why does that happen? In a sense, Lady Philosophy's answer, why do bad things happen to good people? They don't. Right. Her answer has puzzled him a little bit more. It's like, okay, I grant that. Big picture, I grant that. But that makes the world, in one way, it makes the world make sense even less. Given that good people cannot be deprived of their reward and bad people can't ever gain, they are powerless to get the good. Why does that not Why is that so opposite to what we actually see? Why should that, that be? Why should it not match up? If the world is ordained by God and organized, you know, by, uh, by the good, powerful God, why does that happen? Shouldn't it match? Shouldn't it fit? Shouldn't it not sound like opposite world, right? When you're looking at it from the highest heavens, why does it look like opposite world? Why should fortune happen? Why? So he's still not fully satisfied, right? He still needs more. And 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 notice what he wants. He says, "I, in a sense, I'd be okay if I could believe that it was it was just like, you know, stuff happens, right? It was just it's just it's it's, it's kind of random, right? Things get mixed around, right? The wheel of fortune turns. Live with it." And he's like, "I can't live with that, because I don't believe in the randomness of stuff." if God's in control, why does he organize things this way? Why is it arbitrary? Why does unjust injustice occur? Um, tune in next time when philosophy begins to answer that question and we begin to go into the, so my hope, my hope is to do the rest of book four and book five and two more classes. We'll see if we can get there. Um, Start here, so we're we're gonna start in in prose six, uh, so the last two sections, prose six, so the last two prose sections and last two poems of book four, and then we're gonna do probably not gonna get much past the first prose section of book five. Do start book five, um, but it's it's really gonna be like uh, sections one and two at most of book five that we're gonna get through next time, and then I'll ho- I'll try to do uh, in one more class the end. Uh, The rest of book five. So that's the plan. Okay. So ideally, please do read uh, all of book five for next time. Then we'll be ready for whatever happens, but definitely get through the first two prose sections and poems uh, of book five. And that's what we'll do next week. All right. Thanks everybody uh, for joining me. And uh, I look forward to uh, carrying on and talking about Fate and Providence. This is where uh, the... um, Uh, The the references, the Tolkien references are going to come even more strongly and you'll begin to see, uh, I think, uh, more and more because this is the stuff that uh, that I think personally uh, influenced Tolkien most of all, uh, Lewis too. So, all right. Thanks, everybody. And I will see you guys next week. Bye now.